Welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center Podcast, brought to you by Compass Data Centers. We build for what's next. Now here's your host, Raymond Hawkins. Well, thank you again for downloading and listening to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. Today, we are joined by one of the University of Cambridge's most distinguished alumnus, and uh, we'll, we'll play a game with you for a bit and see if you can guess. It is not Prince Charles. It is not Emma Thompson or uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, since he is no longer with us, but it is Data Center Dynamics Global Editor, Peter Judge. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. For those of you who don't know, Peter uh, has a, a degree in physics from Cambridge. So uh, unlike me, who uh, managed to uh, barely get through university, um, uh, Peter's actually the smarter one of the two of us on the call today. And not only is he smarter, he's also more well-rounded because he also has a degree in fine arts from St. Martin's College. So Peter, uh, we're going to let you carry the conversation today because you sound far more interesting than I do. <laughs> well, thanks for the intro. Thank you for having us. Folks, we are recording today on the 7th of August, and uh, our, our planet continues to be um, uh, distracted and, and um, slowed uh, in the, the global pandemic. And we'll talk a little bit about how that impacts the data center industry. But more than anything, we're going to learn about Peter and what he's been doing for a, a couple of decades writing and in and around the technology business and what he's seen and changed and how it's impacted the data center. And uh, how is it that a man with a degree in fine arts and physics ended up writing for a living? So we'll uh, we'll have that conversation. And we just uh, ask that you uh, sit down and listen with us and enjoy the conversation, learning about Peter and, and his insights into technology in the data center space. So, Peter, let's go back to Cambridge and you're getting a degree in physics and, and let's talk through how you started there and ended up working uh, in, in the early days with Ziff Davis. How, how did that happen? Okay, well, physics is just great. Physics explains the whole world to you. And uh, so that's what I was there for, to understand the equations that make things run. Um, turns out you really have to be very, very smart to do well at physics where I was. Um, and it also turned out that there were various other interesting options on the curriculum. So um, I found as well as the study and the exams, I'd done a pretty hefty big written dissertation on safety of nuclear power stations. The question was, can you make a nuclear power station really safe without it becoming really uneconomic, the trade-off? Um, and uh, that got interesting, and that's what got me the highest marks in that exam. So I didn't really put that together till later, but now I look back on it, I kind of think, yep, that's technology journalism um, in a nutshell, in a fairly deep way. Um, and so by chance, um, having done that, I found I wound up in a job where I was doing more or less that uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, looking into industrial processes, seeing how they worked, with, you know, and, and how the sort of the relationship between the business and the technology and the practicality of it all as it goes together. So how does a Cambridge-educated physics graduate um, then decide, you know what, I think I might want to study fine arts. you got to talk us through that switch. Um, physics explains the way the world works. Art explains the way the world feels. It's, it's self-expression. I got to the stage where I thought, if you're doing 
all this sort of heavy duty maths to explain things. Um, where's the expression? Where's the feeling? I want to do something that um, is about self-expression. And so I headed off and I did this thing, which is really very much sort of self-expression. We didn't really learn a lot of um, painting technique at St. Martin's, but we learned a lot about sort of um, postmodern theory and that kind of thing. Turns out, um, you know, I did kind of fine at that. I, I can I can paint you a picture if you want. I can draw you a picture. In fact, one of the things I've been doing in lockdown, when I find myself on a video call with people, I get out a pencil and encourage both ends of the conversation to to draw each other. But um, so if if you if if anybody listening to this um, finds themselves talking to me through Zoom or anything else, we can divert and do that while we're doing it. So, but anyway. Once again, the dissertation, the writing was what um, scored me the most points. And I didn't really notice that. But then I just noticed that the jobs I got offers for when I started applying all happened to be about writing. It just, I, it was a process of just steering into my natural uh, niche, which started out in um, technology. Actually, the more that started out at the, the, the British um, technology paper, Computer Weekly, or a monthly offshoot of that. And then, you know, headed off after that to Ziff Davis and other places and various kind of freelance outlets. I just like writing and explaining things and understanding them. Have been lucky enough to find that uh, people want me to do that for them. Love to do, uh, that people will pay you to do something that you're good at and that you enjoy. So, so I love the way you said it, Peter. You said physics is how the world works. It teaches us how the world works and uh, with lovely equations and mathematics. And Art teaches us how the world feels um, and how we can express ourselves through uh, how the world feels and how the world looks. And uh, I think that is, is, did I get both of those right, Peter? Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, they, they aren't that different, really. John Constable, the uh, landscape artist, said that art is a branch of natural philosophy, which was his, the word for physics in his days. He thought that if you're, if you're painting things, all you need to do is understand how it looks to you. <laughs> awesome stuff. I love that. How the world works and how the world feels. And uh, I'll, uh, I think they're both equally important, right? Um, at the end of the day, understanding the, the world around you and how it works and what makes it tick is, is crucial for us to integrate into it. And then how the world and how the people in the world feel, I think might be uh, as important, if not a little bit more, because I think uh, we were designed to be in relationship with folks. So thank you so much for that. Peter, as we uh, as we talk about the transition from uh, your time in school into actually getting paid to writing, uh, could you start uh, how that transition happened? Yeah, well, tech journalism is about there's what what year was it that you started at Computer Week? It was Weekly? back in the eighties. Okay, so so let's see, the Mac Lisa comes out in eighty four. Um, yeah, there were personal computers that were just starting to show up in the late seventies and early eighties. So so we were just starting to to understand this concept of. Uh, microprocessors and computers and screens mm -hmm. and I, the early computers we plugged them into TVs and we were starting to get monitors and so you started in the tech writing about it in the 80s I'm going to say what where we were talking about uh, 8088s or 8086 processors or 286s yeah okay so very beginning so yeah okay so journalism when I started was about phoning people going to meet them typing up your what you've got 
on a manual typewriter and uh, sending it to someone else to typeset it. A whole lot of processes which were really cool, but which no longer exist. And the very first start of the change there had just started to happen in that at the time I started, because of well, because it was a because it was a tech publication, and we knew what was going to be happening, we'd convinced the company to get us uh, a deck rainbow uh, PC, ah, which was a, yeah, yeah, the old Digital <laughs> Equipment Corporation, uh huh, yeah, and uh, we, we were realizing that you know typing and editing on that was a good thing. By the time a couple of years later, when I went freelance. Um, the price and availability of personal computers had improved to such an extent that I could have one at home. And then pretty much instantaneously there, we were starting to get access to dial-up networks for email and that sort of thing, which um, changed the game for working as a freelance. You were suddenly able to work internationally, communicate freely and cheaply with everyone, and yeah, communications became easier. I mean, the, there was a weird moment. Um, one of my early uh, employers used to send copy to a, a separate house to be pasted up. And they used to send it by bike. They used to send a courier to send this stuff, a few files. And um, it, it was obvious to me that we could do a whole lot in that company if we only had a modem and could actually use online services. And the only way I could justify this to them, because it wasn't replacing anything they were doing already, except this courier. All I had to do was work out that the, the cost of that courier per month was less than the cost of an online service and a modem. And uh, that was enough to justify it. And then the benefits followed through after that. Something comes up that's new. You can't justify it unless you can relate it to something that exists already. Here, here. Well, Peter, I remember the first time I submitted a story on my compact laptop via dial-up and didn't have to take copy down to the office and thought, I'm liberated. I can sit right here in front of my <laughs> laptop and type and hit send. And uh, I was it was a DOS-based operating system and a dial-up modem. And it was, it was uh, mm -hmm. you know, just a simple ASCII text file that we sent. And it would take it eons to download but it, it changed everything that all the text came across electronically and there was no more running around and having somebody typeset it for me yeah because you're selling yourself short you have some pretty good journalist credentials at that time when things are changing so fast we are going way back into the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> I, I, people, I, I say to my kids, they're, they're laptops, and they say, Daddy, why, why do we call them laptops? And I say, well, guys, when they first came out, they were so heavy, you couldn't hold them. You had to sit them on your lap. Early laptops you know, weighed 8, 9, 10, 12 pounds. In the, in the early iteration, we actually called them luggables. Um, uh, your computer was luggable, and it came with a handle. My kids think that's so funny, so... I'm going back a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. The luggable dial-up modem days when you could hear the modem um, and you were sending in your stories, You somebody sees this bright young man out of university with a fine arts and physics degree and says, you're really good at writing and you understand technology. Why don't you write about technology? And mm. uh, and as they say now, the rest is history. So so you've gotten to see an incredible span of, of technology. I'd love it if if you would, just, just for our audience's sheer enjoyment, talk about some of the highlights of as you've written about technology, things that you heard coming that, that turned out to be real and things that you heard were coming that turned out to be flops. 
yes, the things that they, that were coming that turned out to be real that I didn't quite meet, I didn't quite pick up on. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the very first publication I, 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 I was on was an offshoot of Computer Weekly for those companies like Digital that did um, mini computers and large systems. And we thought that personal computers were kind of fun, kind of useful. We didn't really foresee just how fast they would change things. And the same really happened with the internet. You know, email was great. And oh, the World Wide Web. I was at some of the early um, World Wide Web conferences. I got, um, I, I, I put together a, an event in London, sometimes still in the, in the very early 90s about internet business. And we got the, the co-inventor of the World Wide Web. So, so were you, were you, you were not able to secure Al Gore to speak, but you were got his co-inventor? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Al Gore was kind of busy at that time. Okay, okay, yeah. The inventor, the creator of the World Wide Web. But after that, who did you get? I forgot about that. There was, there was the System <laughs> Berners-Lee guy who... <laughs> oh, okay, but, yeah. But we had... Yeah. No, but we didn't get him. We got um, someone who early on was actually got, got almost equivalent billing, a guy called Robert Cayo, who was one of his um, colleagues in CERN, who uh, told us lots of useful things about the early days of the web and lots of things that were coming along that were going to be exciting, like, you know, fairly soon the web is going to be able to handle audio and fairly soon it's going to be able to handle video. And yeah. fairly soon you, you may be able to get a trusted connection and do commerce. These things were kind of, this was, it was gone 1990 and th things yeah. were, they were still way in the future. But um, the, uh, the, the good trivia point about it is that um, he told us, and I believe him, that the, the reason the World Wide Web is called the World Wide Web, it's because he was, I think, uh, maybe a Belgian, um, but he and Tim Berners-Lee were working in Geneva uh, in a f largely French-speaking area. And they thought it would be pretty cool if they thought of a name for this thing they'd invented that would be that the French would find hard to pronounce. <laughs> That's so good. Ask someone French to say, world wide Reb, and it's quite uh -huh. painful. <laughs> so, That's so great. <laughs> I, 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 um, either he was having a really good laugh or that's the real story. No one knows. How good is that? That is awesome that uh, <laughs> they wanted our friends, to, the French, to have a tongue twister. That's good stuff. Peter, you made a comment that, that I thought I would highlight, especially, uh, you know, occasionally I, I think the, 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 uh, our, our vast audience includes my two children. And um, – they, they talk a lot. They joke with me occasionally when I talk about the early days of computers. You, you mentioned DEC and that they ran what we would either call minis or mid-range or, or mainframe computing. And I, I think it would be fair to say DEC was mostly in the, in the mid-range space. And this idea of PCs was sort of a cute, quaint concept that no one – in the early days, grasp that this is what was going to fuel change and and fuel um, just the the explosion of technology on the planet. And I actually tell my kids, I said, when I first started selling computers, we used to have advertisements that would say, someday 
there'll be a computer on every desk. And 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 I love that you as a, as a journalist who've been covering technology for three decades said, hey, we didn't see the personal computer coming. I'm, put, I'm putting some words in your mouth, but, <laughs> but I think that's what you said when you said, you know, hey, deck, we thought and we thought those PCs were cute, but we didn't see them coming. Is that is that a fair summary of what you were saying there? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we got a rainbow because we saw that as being more um, tied into the, the the systems that were developing fastest at the time. And also it was it was to hedge our bets because that computer not only had the Intel chip, it had the Zilog chip, which at that stage we thought might be just as successful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, yeah, similarly, we, we didn't know the IBM. We didn't really think the IBM PC was necessarily the one that was going to take off, just as we didn't think Microsoft was necessarily the uh, the word processor that was going to take off. We were spending right. a lot of time talking to a company called Digital Research. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is fascinating for me. I, I talked to with my kids and, and folks that are in the tech business. So there was a great book about the early days of the tech business called Dealers of Lightning. Are you familiar with it? That's one I've heard of, but I haven't read. Yeah. Okay. So Dealers of Lightning was about um, Xerox PARC, um, the, their, their um, research facility in Palo Alto. So I think mm -hmm. PARC's, it was P-A-R-C, Palo Alto Research Center. And it talks about the very early days, just what you just said. Hey, we didn't think this word processor would survive. And we didn't think that this, that the IBM PC would be the, the foundational platform that it turned out to be. The things that they invented at Xerox PARC are just striking. They invented the graphical user interface. They invented the mouse. They invented yep. laser printing. I mean, the, the kinds of technology that came out of Park and, and then the early yep. days that all things today that we just take for granted as part of how we interface with a computer. Uh, so many yes. of those innovations came out of the, the, the Palo Alto Research Center. Yeah, and Ethernet. And there was some Ethernet, that's right. That's right. Ethernet came out of there too. Yeah. And and, and there, there was at one point one, you know, mother of all tech demonstrations where they demonstrated pretty much all those things. Yeah. With a famous wooden mouse. Yeah, that's exactly, of, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So yeah, the, the very early days of things that we now, I mean, and it's actually, I guess it's even we've gotten so far that we've gotten past that. My kids think the fact that I carry a computer, uh, I have a MacBook Air, they think that's hilarious. They're like, dad, we just do everything on the phone. Why do you need a computer? And it, to think that we've gone so far that this little handheld computer has replaced uh, your deck rainbow and my uh, luggable laptop is uh, we, we've it, a lot has changed in three decades. All right. So you didn't see the PC coming. Give us one more surprising technology thing in three decades that you say, wow, that that one caught us by surprise. I'd have to say I, I, I got the internet fairly early. Okay. Yeah. So World Wide Web, you were on that one. Okay. I was on the World Wide Web and I, and I did that conference. And then I went over to, um, I think around about 94... The Internet Society was having was having lots of really good conferences about sort of getting this technology out to the world. So things like the fact that um, you know in Africa at the time you could only connect stuff to each other with uh, dial-up bulletin boards, and you know was that the appropriate technology because they didn't have the telecoms networks, etc. There were lots of debates like that going on, and I remember in '94 actually seeing I, I, I got to 
be on stage in a panel talking about tech journalism. So I've done that <laughs> for some time. Yeah. Um, along with a, a bunch of other guys. I th- Vince Cerf was there. So that was, that was, that was an yeah. interesting one. But we, um, at that stage, I could really see how the internet made so many things much easier and much clearer. There's a guy called Clifford Stoll who wrote, wrote this wonderful book called The Cuckoo's Egg, which is about how he more or less kind of discovered a whole lot of the security risks that were going on. And his employer at the time fixed them. And the reason he could do that was because he worked out that there were ways in which the Internet provided beautiful shortcuts that made his day job so much easier that he could do this other stuff. So wow. th- there were lots of exciting things like that going on. And uh, the thing the thing that that I'm thinking at the moment is I remember thinking that when information is free and easily shareable and you know issues of copyright get sort of updated to to sort to live in this new world then it's going to be really hard for lies to get spread that the that the truth will automatically be there because many eyes will see it you know the sort of wikipedia and the and, and the truth gets established so that conspiracy theories can be stopped and run down by the truth, which can catch them up. You know, it used to be that, uh, you know, a lie could get around the world before the truth could get it, get its boots on. And now I thought maybe the truth can catch up. And, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking around me now and feeling a little sad. So uh, I want to make sure I got, I got this one. Your, um, your, hey, Raymond, I may have gotten this one wrong. This free flow of information in the early 90s as the World Wide Web is starting to get established, you thought to yourself, wow, now everyone will be able to have the the, the clear uh, light of day and, and truth defining, shining on it, and we'll be able to root out mis- truths or, 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 or misspoken mm. uh, you know, truths and lies and deceit, and, and that this, this clear free flow and exchange of information truth will reign supreme and uh, I think it, it's fair to say uh, especially since you and I have talked before that we both agree that oh my goodness that one went the exact opposite direction didn't it didn't it just yeah. and you know I mean that that's you know maybe too idealistic a view for a journalist to ever have but this yes. was new stuff and it, and it looked to me like the the truth could be out there much more easily than it could otherwise you know yeah well, I, Peter, I think this might say more about you than it will it does about the the World Wide Web. Is that you uh, have a good heart and and you assume the best in in mankind. That uh, that the more we get to talk and the more we get to communicate, that we would just get to the truth. That's uh, I think that speaks a great deal more about your heart and soul than it does about the what has turned into what it, what it looks to me like a really a, a place for people to live out their greatest inner demons in the in the Twitter sphere and in the and in the the anonymity of the World Wide Web. Okay. Yep. And if this was a Zoom, you'd get me blushing at the moment. <laughs> well, good. Well, fortunately for you and I both, uh, we get to do this via uh, audio only. I told I told the producer earlier today. I said it's a good thing we don't do a video podcast because I have a face for radio, so we're both safe. 
<laughs> I will say, and, and I know we're sort of bouncing around here, I, I will say that that might be for me the greatest disappointment in what the technology revolution that I've gotten to professionally witness um, in my life has produced is is produced the, the vitriol and the name calling and the hate speech and the bullying um, that, that we see. And, and I'm, I'm not picking on Twitter itself, but I just think the Twitter sphere speaking for all sort of electronic communication has allowed that that age old practice of the paper tiger, someone who will smile and be kind to your face, but in writing, you know, when they're now separated with a pen and, and get to drop a note in the mail, that they that they are, um, are vicious and mean and cruel. I think the internet has brought the worst of that out in mankind, and, and that there are great things that happen there. But that, to me, might be my greatest disappointment as a guy who's helped witness the the technology revolution that it's caused so much division between uh, mm. humans when I think our real, our real calling is to be uh, reconciled and close to each other. Yeah, it's it's removed the delay from paper tigers and poison pens. Yes, yes, that's right. And installed a, a kind of feedback loop that amplifies them. I mean, the, there's, there's a lot of thought that's been going into the psychology of humans and the way in which we gravitate towards information that agrees with what we think we we have or that uh, amplifies our emotions and if you set up a system where like a social media system where the, the, the system itself gets more rewards for the more clicks for the more emotion then that is like the opposite part of that system it you know a, a successful social media platform automatically by definition will have to be one that amplifies emotion and makes uh, and, and pushes us to more reaction and more clicking so it's almost like um we can be angry at the people that have made this uh happen the way it has but the the fact that it's happened is almost inevitable whoever built facebook if someone else had built it it would might well have gone exactly the same way. Well, and yeah, I, th I don't think we can push the blame. I think also what you're saying to, to just the creators, right? Our our eyeballs and, and our desire to watch has fueled this and our reading and our observing has fueled this um, growth. I, I love something you said. You said it's removed the delay of the poison pen and the paper tiger. You know something else, Peter? I think not only has it removed the delay, but it's also um, – by 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 being able to type out 140 characters and hit send, it's it's kept people from being introspective about what they're going to say before they say it. Um, I find that, that that I do better the longer I think about what I'm going to say. Um, the, the shorter the distance is between my thinking it and saying it is is usually bad, <laughs> and the longer is usually good. And I think that the instant feedback loop of uh, of the internet has, has caused people not to be nearly as introspective about how they say, what they say, what they accuse people of, how they attack people. And I think we're, we're worse off for it. Yeah. I want to say something good though. So let's. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so we're, yeah, we're, we're down on it and there's lots of goodness. So help. That's a good transition, Peter. Let's, let's talk about all the incredible things that have happened because of the, our interconnection. Awareness of what's going around, going on around us. is not always going to be sort of, you know, absolutely truthful, but think how long it took for things like pictures of famine to reach us 30, 40 years ago. Uh, how unaware we could be of what was going on in the world. That's no longer the case. I mean, and um, our responses can be manipulated, but, our, but the availability of what's going on 
um, the visibility of what's going on is much, you know, when it's done properly. If if the curators and the the if if the channels that we're seeing are as truthful as possible, we can know much more than we ever did. Yeah, Peter, let's 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 take a current event and 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 run it through that lens you just offered us. Let's take, although not a not a, a an issue like famine, which can be long running. Let's take Beirut in 1983, uh, when the barracks there, the Marine barracks, were bombed. There, it's a day, day and a half, maybe two days before the West gets still pictures of that. And then let's take the explosion that was. In, so we're recording August seventh. So I think the explosion was Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. I want to say within an hour on my Instagram feed was live video of the explosion there in Lebanon this week um, and and the ability to, to know what happened, to be able to see it, to, to be able to get security pictures and video. I mean, to me, that, that's a great example of, uh, although a, a particular a single event like an explosion, um, how different the world is 37 years apart. Yeah, and we get to hear about it. We get to see people um, like that woman having her bridal photos taken. Yes. Everyone's seen that video. So, yeah, and um, now that then leads to this sort of activism as people there saying, you know, hold the government to account, um, Mm -hmm. which it reminds me of the expectations we had about the Arab Spring a few years ago when uh, that was really the first time that sort of Facebook and other social media outlets, we still thought Facebook was a good thing, and we saw (laughs) people organizing with it to overthrow and object to bad-hearted governments um, in the Middle East. And very, very mixed result to that, you know, a sort of, there was a sort of technocratic look over in the West where we thought these people, they, they're, they're going to overthrow the government. Let's leave them to it. And uh, we left them to it. And some of those people just got crushed. Yeah. And and we had whole sort of internet fueled and enabled Muslim Islamic terrorists in, in ISIS. They were sort of, uh, that was a whole sort of, uh, yeah, well, I don't know where I'm going with that one. But, <laughs> you yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, rec- recruiting via the, the internet, or or to your point, sharing information. I remember when when Egypt was first in crisis in 2010, mm. and the groups were communicating with each other and saying, "Hey, here's where we're going to go protest today, and here's where we're going to protest, and here's what to bring." And I mean, it was this um, sort of grassroots communication tool uh, that 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 offered an incredible not only visual image as an insight, but communication. Communication and collaboration, sort of. I'm a, a, a military veteran. I think of the term command and control. It offered a level. The internet offered a level of command and control to these, what would otherwise have been a pretty fractured group of protesters, and they were able to organize and communicate. So, there's no question. It's um, it's an incredible tool and can be used for good and can be used for evil. No question. But that's a good one. The Arab Spring one's a good good one to think about how it was um, used on both sides. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we we have a lot of demonstrations or one might, they call themselves maybe uprisings um, in the States and some of it over here for Black Lives Matter. Right, right. Wh- whatever's going on there, I mean, I know because my colleagues will tell me, they, they know how to deal with a smoke grenade using a leaf blower and a traffic cone now. Right, yeah, <laughs> the, right. The practicalities exactly. of these things are, are, all, are all out there. Here, here. As is, yeah. 
Well, it's it's fascinating having um, having been born in a world that that didn't have computers and and um, they'd been invented, but they weren't commercially viable. And then um, I took my first computer class in the fourth grade and uh, was programming in BASIC, which is kind of funny. And having gotten to live through uh, the way I summarize it for my kids is I stumbled into the technology business in the late '80s and um, started brokering used computer equipment for corporations and got to see the advent of the personal computer because that was a thing wasn't a thing when I started working then the advent of client server computing then who can remember the much ballyhooed y2k and then the dot com explosion oh, yeah. In the early 2000s, then the dot-com implosion soon thereafter, and then the financial crisis and global recession of 08, 09, and then uh, what I would consider now the explosion of the internet age post the economic crisis and what we see today with Facebook and Microsoft and, and AWS delivering cloud services to customers um, and to businesses and, and fundamentally changing where people get their compute. That, that's a, that's a, that's Raymond's career in 45 seconds <laughs> uh, from a technology perspective and, and seeing yeah. how um, that has changed our world. And, and I think that, that uh, is, is, and I know we neither, we, we've talked for 30 minutes and we haven't said DCD and we haven't said compass, but uh, how do we, how do we tie all of this great conversation back to the, the, the data center business, which to me today is, um, is, is leading the technology revolution. And, and even in the context of COVID, Peter, I, I heard someone say the other day that we've seen three years of, um, technology transformation in three months due to COVID. And I think that's so true. Yeah, that's true. Yes. I mean, at, at DCD, it was really quite um, extreme in that um, my part of the company is, uh, I'm, I'm in the media part. So my job is to make a good website, make a good magazine on print and online. And, um, <laughs> and the print bit in itself is a, a, is a surprise. Because around about the year 2000, I stopped doing print journalism because everything went online around about right. then. I've only been at DCD five years, and it was like, I'm back doing a print magazine, and I'm loving it. Um, yeah. It's the first time I've done print <laughs> this century. <laughs> yeah, how about that? So so the print business, it, and not to, I don't want to give away trade secrets or anything, but how, how, what's the circulation? What's the readership? I, for me, and I, I know cause I'm a dinosaur, I like holding my reading. I like putting it in my hand. Um, it, it does the, does the magazine still enjoy a, a significant readership? Yeah. I mean, we have like about 10,000 people oh, who wow. want to have a copy, who want to read it. Yeah. 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 And we, we could easily get more than that. There's a sort of, you know, I mean, especially during this pandemic when people are having more time stuck at home time to read you know certainly there's it's done interesting and from our point of view generally good things to the traffic on the website and we're getting as much or more feedback about the physical magazine as we ever did however some of that is about the difficulty of getting hold of it because I expect a lot of those magazines that have been printed may well be sort of stacking up on desks in offices that aren't being visited at the moment. Um, so we, we probably had a, a policy. I'm sure we would have preferred addresses that sound like offices 
in the past. So, you know, there's an obvious thing that we need to do now, which would be to go back to our subscriber list, uh, update the addresses. And given that people will be working from home more than offices for the foreseeable future, to start prioritizing um, delivery to homes. It's going to do, that's going to do interesting things. And a lot of other sort of magazines and publications have had to do different things like that. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of hard copy, the ones I feel sorry for are the newsstand magazines because you sit, people simply for a few months just didn't get to the shops in the same way they used to. So picking up a newspaper was not something that people would do. Like so many other things in the COVID crisis, that was accelerating something that was well underway before. But yes, um, right. you know, it's, it, it's put a huge, it, it's added and accelerated that crisis in local papers and uh, local journalism. Peter, thank you so much for that. Uh, now is probably a good time for us to uh, give our listeners a break and uh, ask them to tune in next time as we finish our conversation with DCD's Peter Judge. Thank you. <laughs>